Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, are you thankful for the truth that it is finished? We're going to consider an application or an implication of the reality that we just sang in that song from the book of Acts. If you're new to North Roanoke, uh, we typically just walk through books of the Bible. Um, God wrote a book, and it's comprised of 66 books, and we endeavor to understand God's Word as it has been written to us. And so we find ourselves in Acts, the beginning of the 10th chapter. And as you're turning there, um, I want to, to sort of set the context a little bit, of, remind us sort of how far we've come thus far in the book of Acts. A- as you're turning there, we need to keep in mind that Acts is about Jesus' ongoing work through his people. A, a people to this point that includes ethnic Jews and Jewish proselytes or, or those who have converted out of being Gentiles and, and into Judaism uh, through the covenant of circumcision. And it includes those Jews that have been regathered from every known nation on earth, along with a man from Ethiopia who seems to be as close to a Jewish convert as you could be while being a eunuch. So, so far in Acts, we've seen the message of the reign of Israel's Messiah that it's already overspread Israel's historic territorial boundaries. It's gotten to the edge of what we would consider the Davidic kingdom and even gone beyond the height of Israel's territorial rule and reign from the Old Testament. In other words, the divided and subsequently destroyed kingdom that we read about in the Old Testament has been raised and reconstituted and reunited in the King, in the risen King Jesus. And at every step along the way, Luke is showing us that the Old Testament promises to Israel are now being fulfilled as the Spirit, as Joel prophesied, is poured out on all kinds of people. Even on on Hellenists, those who were Jewish in background, but they had Greek culture and spoke Greek as their language. They, They have been saved into this people of God. It's even included former outcasts like the Ethiopian eunuch. Those who previously had no access into the temple were now given access through Jesus. They've discovered that the temple is wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, and because of Christ, that that we can tabernacle the presence of God. He changes us on the inside. And we've even seen that enemies of the people of God, through the power of God, are confronted over their sin, they're converted by God, and brought into the family of God, enemies like, like Saul. So we've, we've seen outcasts and Hellenists and, and Jews joining the people of God. Thousands upon thousands of Jews from every known nation under heaven have, have come to Jesus. But what about, what about Gentiles? What about 
most of the people, if not all of the people in this room, those who have no background in Judaism, those who are not descendants of Abraham. Would God's growing family, would His growing people really include Gentiles as texts like Isaiah 49.6 suggest that it would? And if Gentiles are going to be included in the family of God, in the people of God, do they, do they have to become Jewish to become God's people, or can they just become God's people? Do they have to keep the ceremonial laws from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, the, the Mosaic Law, those laws of cleanness and uncleanness in order to get to Jesus? And in the last verse of chapter 9, we, we begin to get a hint at the answer. Luke is already hinting in the direction that he's going because Peter is living in Joppa, which is a predominantly Gentile city, and he's living with a tanner, which is someone who would, by virtue of his profession, be handling dead animals all the time. In other words, he would have been ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament law. Peter already seems to be growing in his appreciation of the fact that cleanness, as God counts cleanness, is found in Christ, not in what we eat or what we handle. And if that's true, if cleanness is Christ, that has massive implications for who can be saved and what they have to do to be rescued from sin and death. But as we're going to see, Peter still has some things to learn about God's desire to fulfill his saving purposes in all its breath. He's not just going to save Jews all over the world or people who become Jews all over the world. He's just going to save people through Jesus, period. So today, we're going to consider what I'm calling God's preparation of Peter. In order for Gentiles to be included in the family of God, Peter and by extension the apostles really have to understand just how massive a Savior Jesus is. Just how total His saving power and His cleansing are. Would you hear with me the Word of God? We're going to read chapter 1 down through verse 8 to start. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, which means the Jewish people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. I think I would have done the same. And said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Would you pray with me? God, we ask in our consideration of your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to see what you have accomplished through Christ. That, that we would have a deeper appreciation today for the implications of the song that we just sang, It Is Finished. God, that you would give us your eyes and your perspective on lostness. God, that any barriers that we would erect 
to stand between people and God that are not of you, God, that they would be torn down today. That your church would be more eager and more willing as a result of having encountered you in this text to be those who are ambassadors for Christ, bringing all kinds of people to the Savior. I pray it for the glory of Christ and in His name. Amen. I want you to see from verses 1 through 8, and we're, we're going to go further this morning, but there's a, there's a lot in this text. So in verses 1 through 8, I just want you to grab this nugget. No one enters God's kingdom without faith in King Jesus. No one enters God's kingdom without faith in King Jesus. In verse 1, we're introduced to Cornelius. He's a good guy if there ever was a good guy. He lives in Caesarea, the capital of the Roman province, province of Judea. He's, as a centurion, leading the Italian cohort. He would have been a Roman citizen, commanding a force of about 100 freedmen who would have only been called up for service during periods of great military need. Now, you've got to understand how jarring it is to be introduced to a Roman as someone who is devout and fearing God. It wasn't that long ago that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Jews had seen Rome rather than sin and death as the the oppressors that they needed to vanquish. So Cornelius would have been still, for these ethnic Jews now turned Christians, uh, he would have been the last person that God wanted to reach in their mind. But then in verse 2, we we learn that Cornelius is devout. And he fears God. To, to fear God is, is to honor and respect and worship God. Do you, do you fear God? Do you give God prominence in your life? Do you respect Him? Is there anything greater in your life than God? This, this Roman centurion outside of the covenant people of God is, is looking for God. And his devotion, quite frankly, is incredible. It wasn't a private faith. He led his entire household to fear God with him. And he continuously gave to the people, meaning to the Jewish people. He's like, these people, somehow, through these people, there's the one true God of the universe, and I don't know what it is, but, but I'm going to bless them. And maybe in blessing them, God would see fit to bless me. He, he, play, he prayed regularly, likely at the three designated times of praying at the temple. In in other words, Cornelius is familiar with the Old Testament. And he's even looking for the God of the Jews, for Yahweh, to somehow include him as a part of his people, despite the fact that he is a Gentile. And in verse 3, we learn that around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which would have been one of those designated times of prayer at the temple, Cornelius has a vision of an angel who comes in and says... Cornelius, all right, what's going on, Lord? And he says, uh, well, we find out in verse 4 that he's, he's fearful, that the angel brings terror to his life, but the angel has wonderful news, right? Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What does that mean? It means God is accepting the worship that you are offering. This language reminds us of God's acceptance of the offerings that are offered in faith in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, do you remember the ark comes to a rest, Noah gets off and he offers sacrifices to God, and the sacrifices come up to God as a pleasing aroma. 
in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we learn the difference between sacrifices that are offered in faith and therefore acceptable to God and sacrifices that are just self-serving, trying to just get on God's good side. The author says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. In other words, there are self-serving sacrifices and there are faith-filled sacrifices. What is the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice? It's not that one was animals and one was crops. It is that one was offered in faith and one was not. One was offered with right fear and respect and honor of God and one was just tipping their hand to God. Well, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to do my tithe. I'm going to put my thing in the offering plate. I'm going to check one more box so that I can be okay with God rather than I really love God and fear God and desire God in my life. Peterson says Cornelius was acceptable to God because of a God-given faith which found practical expression in godly living. So he's not justified by God by what he does but by the faith that animates what he does. God doesn't visit Cornelius or accept his sacrifices because he deserves it. He accepts his sacrifices because God graciously blesses those who trust in him and seek to do his will. But at this point, Cornelius' faith is incomplete. Salvation is in Christ alone. It's not in God generally. It is in God and the Son that he has sent. Salvation, as we've seen consistently throughout the book of Acts, is in Jesus' name. Indeed, in Acts 4, Peter had already proclaimed to the temple leaders, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Cornelius is is looking to God in faith, but he still needed to meet and trust and follow King Jesus in order to enter God's kingdom. So the angel tells Cornelius to send men to summon Peter and convince Peter to depart his beach house in Joppa. I mean, this guy has gotten to Joppa to Tanner's house. He's hanging out by the sea. You go get Peter. What's going on with Peter? Like, why why doesn't he send Cornelius to go see Peter at the beach house? Because it's not just Cornelius who needs to learn something. Cornelius needs to meet Jesus, but Peter needs to meet a Gentile coming to Jesus. Peter needs to see just how vast and comprehensive this gospel really is. So Cornelius, he obeys immediately. The text tells us literally in verse 7, as the angel is leaving, he's already summoning his men. The angel isn't even fully out of the picture, and he's like, hey, y'all, y'all are going. By the way, here's a military guy. He's going with you likely for protective detail. And he tells them what? Everything. Everything that had happened, he tells them. In other words, Cornelius' obedience is immediate and it's meticulous. Do you want to know what it looks like to follow God? To be a God-fearer? It's not to cut corners. It's not to make excuses. It's not to say, well, I had a little hang-up or a little mistake and to paper over who we really are. It's to say God is God and to give him our full, meticulous, immediate obedience. That's what obedience is. It's, it's not to hide. And so Any of you have toddlers? Right? Obedience is not a negotiation. Obedience is a decision to follow God. 
And that's what Cornelius does. And he sends his men out to Peter because Peter has some things to learn. So let's keep reading, beginning in verse 9 down through verse 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. This is not a food coma or a lack of food coma. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And what Peter is going to learn and what we by extension need to learn from verses 9 through 16 is this truth. The purity that God requires comes entirely through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The purity that God requires to be accepted by God, to stand before God, to have your prayers heard by God comes through Christ alone. With, with every movement of the gospel out from Jerusalem and to people more distant from Judaism, there has been what Thielman calls a resistance or a hesitation from some in the Christian community. The apostles had to pass muster on Philip's evangelistic success in Samaria in chapter 8. Believers refuse to believe that Saul's conversion is genuine in chapter 9. And now we see that Peter is reluctant to transgress the Mosaic dietary laws in order to take the word of God to Gentiles. In Saul's conversion, you remember his conversion? We had a pair of visions, one for Saul and one for Ananias. Saul needed to see Jesus and Ananias needed to see the possibility of a new Saul. And here we get another pair of visions, again suggesting the need for two transformations. To be saved, Cornelius needed to trust Jesus, but Peter also needs to better understand the implications of the gospel that he's preaching. Peter needs to get that purity does not come from the ritual laws under the old covenant. He needs to understand those laws were never given to save anyone. For the gospel to get to Gentiles, Peter's got to understand, as Peterson writes, that the clean and the unclean provisions of the law were temporary, designed to keep Israel a distinct people until when? Until the time when Jews and Gentiles would receive the forgiveness of sins and sanctification on the same basis. What's that basis? Through faith. In Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah and King alone, period, forever, full stop. It's in Jesus. The laws of purity preserved a people to get us to Jesus so that everybody could recognize them. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, every culture, every color, period. It's in Christ alone. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. Jesus himself is our peace. Who has made us, who's the us, Jews and Gentiles, both one. 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace between Jew and Gentile, and might reconcile us both to God. How? In one body. Whose body? His body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And let me just tell you, if God in Christ can kill the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, he can kill the hostility between black and white. He can kill the hostility between black and brown. He can kill the hostility between hymns and praise courses. He can kill the hostility between uptown, downtown, Cross the tracks, this side of the tracks, poor, rich, and in between. He kills all that hostility. There's no hostility greater than the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. So whatever your issue is, whoever you can't talk to, whoever you can't get the gospel to, whoever you can't worship with, do you know this Jesus who says, I killed the hostility on the cross? God takes the initiative. Not in just saving Cornelius, but also in clarifying Peter's understanding of the implications of the gospel. That's Luke's point in showing us the simultaneous action throughout the story. In verse 9, just as Cornelius' emissaries arrive in Joppa, right as they come into town, what is Peter doing? He's going up on the rooftop to pray because Luke is showing us that the sovereign God is the architect of Cornelius' salvation and the dismantling of Peter's prejudice rooted in a misunderstanding of the laws of the Old Covenant. It's lunchtime. It's around noon. Peter goes up on that flat roof overlooking the sea and he's hungry. And, and then he falls into a trance. And, and I want to submit to you that those scriptures show us time and again that when we're prayerful and when we're hungry, we're most open to hear from God. You say, well, was he fasting? Well, he wasn't intentionally fasting, but he was hungry and he was going to pray. You want to hear from God? Get in the discipline of being prayerful and and fast in your life. Find some times to forego a lunch and say, instead of lunch, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be hungry. And I'm going to open my Bible and I'm going to listen to what God wants to say in my life. That's That's just for free this morning. But it's right there, right? He's hungry and he's praying and then boom, God shows up. And in verse 11, the the heavens are open signifying a direct and divine revelation to Peter. In Acts 1, we saw Jesus ascending to the heavens telling his apostles, you're going to be my empowered witnesses to the end of the earth. But now Peter's hanging out in Joppa by the sea and it looks like the gospel might be sidelined. So God... God has Cornelius send his men to Peter and Joppa and opens up the heavens for Peter to say, look, it's time not to restrict the mission, but to stay on mission because I got a whole bunch of people that you never even thought could be my people that are going to trust in Jesus. Getting the gospel to the ends of the earth does not mean bringing Gentiles to the temporary and preparatory laws of Judaism, but to Jesus who cleans everyone once and for all, Jew or Gentile, if they'll turn from their sin and trust in him. And to make this point, a, a vessel or a container of some kind, like a giant sheet containing all types of animals and critters mentioned in Genesis 1, is let down before Peter. In other words, This sheet has clean and unclean animals in it. It's got all kinds of stuff. And Jesus tells Peter to get up 
and kill or literally sacrifice the animals and eat them regardless of their status, clean or unclean. And in verse 14, what does Peter say? Uh Uh-uh. Not going to do it. I know what the old I know what the old covenant says. Not going to do it. So Peter, Peter says, "No, I, I haven't eaten anything common or unclean." Jesus, I have obeyed Leviticus eleven and Leviticus twenty my whole life. I'm not going to stop now. And Jesus, in verse fifteen, says, "What God has made clean, don't call common or profane." Jesus gives this command in the present tense. In other words, he says, Peter, stop it. You stop calling defiled what I have made clean. Church, we've got to understand when Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws of the old covenant, he did not do away with our need to honor him in our conduct. But he did do away with the ceremonial laws of cleanness and uncleanness. Jesus is clear. It's not what goes into our stomachs, but what comes out of our hearts that defiles a man. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his heart, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark adds this little phrase, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now here's what some of you do with that. I've seen it my whole life. Well, Jesus came, and that means I don't have to worry about morality anymore. That's what Jesus said. He fulfilled the law. The law is fine. I don't have to keep the law. Baloney. He fulfilled the ceremony. He, he eliminates the ceremonial law in fulfilling the moral law, the Ten Commandments, honoring God, being pure in our human sexuality. He didn't disband those things. He gave you the power to keep those things by changing you on the inside. Because listen to what Mark 7 keeps saying. Listen to what Jesus says. If we keep reading, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And here's a big one for our culture today. Sexual immorality. Have y'all ever heard people say Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality? He didn't say anything about transgenderism? He didn't say anything about pornography? Jesus never talked about those things? Yes, he did right here. This is a common container to describe all kinds of sexual immorality. In one word, Jesus covers it all. He says all the sexual deviance in the world comes from within. Adultery, fornication, pornography, trans, whatever it is that the world is trying to normalize, Jesus says it's sin and it comes out of a wicked and depraved heart. And then he continues, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. You know what our problem is? Apart from Christ, we're all defiled. There's not a one of us in here that at least one of those words didn't describe your life. Starting with your pastor. So the issue for every person 
Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, blue collar, white collar, man, woman, is the issue of the heart. And as Peter is about to discover, Jesus can clean the heart of anyone from any background who comes to him in faith, even Cornelius, the Roman centurion Gentile. This divinely initiated conversation happens three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. And now it's like he's denying Jesus again three times. And Jesus is like, I'm going to get through that head, Peter. Peter is challenged by Jesus to see that the old covenant laws of ritual purity have been fulfilled in Jesus. It's a game changer. People don't have to become Jews to become a part of God's people. And Peter is still processing this as we turn the page to verse 17. Would you hear with me the word of God down through verse 35? Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Who sent Cornelius? Who sent Cornelius' men? God did. Verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them and Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know. How unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. In the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, and before he got to the gospel, which we'll consider next week, he said this. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is accept what is right is acceptable to him church I, I don't think that any of us 
have fully internalized the magnitude of what Peter discovers. And I want to challenge us in closing this morning from these verses with this point. We have to be the church and we have to be individuals who act on this truth. That God's saving grace is available to anyone from any background who trusts in Jesus. Do we really believe that? That he, that he puts people together through the blood of Christ. In verse 17, Peter is still processing this vision. I imagine that he looked like me the first 30 minutes of watching Star Wars for the first time. I still don't get Star Wars. They, they don't speak English. It's like Arabish or something and Wookiee. And they walk around and it's very slow moving. And some people really like this series and that's great. I, I don't get it. And now more people are offended by me. That's all right. Pastor doesn't like coconut. He doesn't like Pepsi. He doesn't like cherries. And now he doesn't like Star Wars. What is wrong with that guy? But Peter's like, what in the world is going on? And as he's pondering the vision, Cornelius' men arrive at his house. And the Spirit commands Peter to get up, go down, and accompany them without hesitation. Then the Spirit adds that it wasn't just Cornelius who sent them, that God himself, the Spirit, sent them. I, I praise God that God can draw all kinds of people that we would not expect him to draw up into saving faith in his son. And did you know he's still doing it through dreams today? I, I was reading in preparation for this sermon, I, I read a commentary by, by someone I actually know personally who has a friend who's a missionary in the Muslim world, and he recounts this story of a Muslim who had a dream of this guy who just kept saying, I am, I am, I am. And the dream ended with, you got to go to this house and see this guy, and he's going to tell you more about the guy who is I am. And he goes to the missionary's house, and he says, I was told to come here. And he says, well, really, a lot of times I start people out in the book of John, the gospel of John. Here's the gospel of John. Why don't you read it and come back and talk about it with me? Guess what Jesus says all over the place in the book of John? I am. Bread of life, the resurrection and life. He comes back to the missionary's house. He's like, who's that guy? That's Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. God still works in these extraordinary ways. But did you know more often the case is he, he works in ways that maybe we dismiss, dismiss or paper over? He works through, through churches that pray according to what God has already revealed in his word. He, he works through churches who lay down their own added rules and preferences to welcome those that the Spirit will send to us. I've been in church for. Can you believe he's got shorts on? I don't care. Like, where is that in the Bible? You can't wear shorts and get saved. You can't, you can't wear shorts and worship God. Who says? That's not in the Bible. I'm getting distracted. I'm about ready to go. Guys, um, do we want to see this happen today? Do we want to see people encounter God today? He's doing it through churches who beg God that their weekly assembly might reflect the demographic realities of their community. 
passages like this one are at the heart of why that I pray consistently that God would allow North Roanoke Baptist Church to be a church in the Roanoke Valley for the Roanoke Valley that looks like the Roanoke Valley. Because if the Spirit of God can put a first century Jew and a first century Gentile together in the same church, He can put anybody together through the blood of Jesus. The kingdom of God in eternity is going to be a kaleidoscope of human color. Healed and redeemed and cleansed and raised by our king. So when the spirit says to Peter, go to the men without hesitation, what does he mean? He's not just talking about his speed. The word literally means without discrimination, without a hostile spirit, or without making a distinction or a judgment. In other words, Peter, don't prejudge the situation. You just go there because I'm sending you with the gospel and see what happens. So Peter obeys the Spirit. He learns about Cornelius and he, he welcomes these Gentile Romans as his overnight guests. He does not hesitate or discriminate and then he shows hospitality. And on the next morning, the ringleader of the apostles humbles himself and makes a two-day journey to Caesarea. He doesn't say, you go back and get... Cornelius and make him come to me, he goes to Cornelius. And I sometimes wonder on that overnight stay back to Caesarea, about a 30, minute, uh, 30 mile trek, as they overnighted, I, I sometimes wonder if somebody was like, hey Peter, you want some pork rinds? Slim Jim? I mean, what was that, what was that like, right? They're on the way, I let you in my house, still processing this vision. And Peter gets to Caesarea, and he's about to enter Cornelius' house, and Cornelius meets Peter and falls at his feet outside of his house. Now, in this case, the, the version we read said that he worshipped him. Uh, that may be what's going on, but, but in this context, it's more likely a, a profound sign of respect rather than worship. But either way, Peter won't have any of it. This respected Roman military leader is bowing outside of his home for anybody to see. And Peter lifts him up and commands him to stand. As he's lifting him up, he's like, stop it. I'm a man too. I'm just a man too. And it's like, he's communicating that to Cornelius, but Peter is having this realization all afresh, like, I'm nobody special. It's God who called me to be his witness. It's God who let me walk with him for three years. It's God who, in spite of the fact that I denied him, restored me threefold to be with him and on his team. I am nothing apart from God. I'm just a man. It's all of God. And as these two men talk and walk into Cornelius' home, Peter finds or discovers Again, it's that Greek word eureka, verse 27. He discovers many people that Cornelius has invited. By the way, if you want to have a gospel house party at your house, I will come and I will share the gospel. That's not a joke. Like, if you invite your neighborhood, I'm there. Now you say, well, why can't I share the gospel? You can, but if you're like, I don't feel like I can share the gospel, but my pastor can share the gospel, you have a gospel house party, I am there to share the gospel. But before Peter shares the gospel, he shares about his own conversion. 
He directly confronts the potential awkwardness of a Jew standing in a Gentile's house in verse 28. And he says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation. The laws of Moses, incidentally, don't have a specific provision that forbids associating with Gentiles. It's just the practicality of it, right? Gentiles are perpetually unclean, so if you're hanging out with a Gentile, you're unclean. So you'd never be able to live your life because you always be trying to go through the rituals to become clean again. As Peterson says, Gentiles didn't observe the biblical rules about food. Such defilement would have to be removed by following the provisions of the law for cleansing. So, but, but here Peter is, standing in a Gentile's house. He's invited them into his own home. He's walked with them all the way to Caesarea, and there he is. And what does he say in verse 28? God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. Peter is finally understanding the purpose of Israel is Jesus. He's understanding that God created and chose Israel to send his son to the world in a way that Jesus would be recognized, not because Israelites are morally superior to Gentiles. They aren't. We all are guilty before a holy God. So Peter needs to stop seeing people in categories of clean and unclean and recognize that we're all unclean, and that's Jesus' business to deal with. We've got to recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope of cleanliness, the cleanliness that counts for any man before a holy God. And that means that Peter doesn't need to fear contact with the Gentiles. Rather, he can freely interact with the Gentiles. He can offer them the gospel, knowing there is no need for people to become clean according to Jewish laws. He can just come to Jesus directly and be found as clean in the eyes of God himself. If Peter had any doubts about this truth, it is confirmed in verses 30 and 33. As Cornelius reports to Peter about his encounter with the angel who told him to ask for Peter and to listen to what Peter has to say. So Peter, Peter shows up and he's like, what's going on? And Cornelius tells him the whole vision all over again. We get a little bit more information, right? Like, he told me to listen to what you have to say. And what does Peter have to say? We would expect him to get straight to the gospel, but instead he goes, truly, I understand, verse 34, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Church, I have been asking God all week to confront us with our own prejudices. To confront us with our own tendency to be hesitant with the gospel. I typically read this story and I look at Peter and I say, what in the world is wrong with Peter? Knucklehead. But this week as I was studying, I was convicted by the Spirit to look at myself. And to ask myself why it is that I tend to restrict the gospel to those who are most familiar or most comfortable or those who are already clean in my own eyes. Samuel had a track meet this Wednesday. His first ever. And I was wrestling through this text. And I was like, God, do I do this? Do I, do I have categories of clean and unclean? Are there, are there people that I write off before I even have a chance to talk to them? I don't do this, God. I'm, I'm good. 
And then I said this, God, if I'm wrong about that, show me. And we showed up at the track meet, and there's a 70-some-year-old man, and there's nothing wrong with being 70-some years old, and he was, he was pretty wrinkly. There's nothing wrong with having a bunch of wrinkles when you're 70-some years old, maybe even 80-some years old, but he was wearing some very tight biker shorts <laughs> and a muscle shirt. And it just wasn't working for me. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy, trying not to stare or to judge, but I am. And two hours earlier, I was sitting in the student room preparing, asking God to show me if this stuff was still in my heart. And I was like dead in my tracks, like, wow. Thanks, Lord. He showed me. Matthew 5, 47, Jesus says, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? In his commentary on Acts, Marita writes, There are many impediments to the advancement of the gospel, many stumbling blocks, many things that cause the gospel not to advance. We've seen outside persecution, we've seen internal drama, and here we see another impediment. Are you ready for it, church? Our own hearts. Hang with me just for a second. What is your disposition when you encounter a person with tattoos and multiple piercings? When you are introduced to a same-sex couple or encounter a cross-dresser while paying for your groceries? How do you speak and act when introduced to those whose politics are the opposite of your own? What about when you meet a Muslim family new to your neighborhood? This text teaches us that no wall No wall should keep Christians from offering the gospel of Jesus freely and lovingly to everyone. Everybody. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this? That salvation is by, for, through, and unto Christ. Do we believe that God shows no partiality? Verse 34. Let me tell you what that phrase means, literally in Greek. It means that he is not an acceptor of a face. You can put lipstick on. You can pretty yourself up. God's not looking at your face. He's looking at your heart. He is not an acceptor of faces. People with dirty faces will be in the kingdom of heaven. People with scarred faces and tired faces and silly faces and inebriated faces and guilty faces and smirky faces and tattooed faces and pierced faces and praise God, even freckled buck-toothed faces like your pastor used to have. They can enter the kingdom of God not because of what's on their face, but if they'll behold the face of the Savior and bow at His feet and endeavor to turn from their sin and worship from Him, they will be accepted by their God. God through faith in Christ. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Or are we just looking for familiar faces, nice and pretty and prim and proper and put together in religious faces? Church, one day, Those who seek the face of Christ will see him face to face. And if we are seeking the face of Christ, we will seek to reach people with all kinds of faces from all kinds of places. 
Let us not be a church that rebuilds barriers that Jesus was buried to destroy. Let's go to people with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, begging him that we might be a church in Roanoke, for Roanoke, that looks like Roanoke, for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we are nothing apart from Christ. We are not our titles, we are not our accomplishments, we are not our degrees. We are either saved and delivered through the blood of Christ or we are not. And if we are not, we remain in our sin. God, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, has not received the the power uh, to live a transformed and changed life that comes through the new heart that Christ gives, that you'd give them the liberty to come. And God, I pray for our church. Listening online, listening in the overflow in the sanctuary. God, I pray as you did in in a somewhat humorous but a profound way. You showed me some bias and some some hesitancy in my own heart this week. God, I pray in this room that you would reveal to us where we've been hesitant, where we've been withholding the gospel, and that any category that stands between us and giving the, the gospel of Christ to others, God, you'd take it out of the way. God, even supernaturally, even in this moment, Spirit of God, that you would give us the liberty to follow and chase after Christ. And that means chasing after all kinds of people. Help us in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.